Hola, habla español? Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Julie Barlow and Jean-Benoit Nadeau explain how the Spanish language rose to global prominence, starting with King Ferdinand. This is a king who set out to make Spanish into something worthwhile to use. The authors of The Story of Spanish help us see the influence of Spain on who we are today in North America. The entire cowboy culture in the United States was actually created in Spain, in Spanish, by Mexicans. We'll also get advice for enjoying Spain on a first-time visit. A flamenco show is a good place to grasp the influences on Spanish history. It's a mixture, a melting pot of all of these cultures, so the flamenco, it's the summary of all of them. Plus tips for seeing the amazing art collection at the Prado. Goya is the perfect Spanish artist because he caught a time in Spain that was very turbulent. We're discovering the romance of Spain and the Spanish language in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Our friends who clued us in to the bonjour effect in France have some new insights to share with us today on Travel with Rick Steves. They'll tell us how Spanish has become one of the world's most spoken languages. That's in just a minute. A little later in the hour, Spanish guides share tips to prepare you for your first trip to Spain and what to look forward to that's going to be different from what you might expect back home. With all the political wrangling in the United States over its immigration policies concerning people from south of the border, the nation's long and intimate relationship with its Spanish-speaking neighbors is often overlooked. In fact, in the United States, we're already one of the top Spanish-speaking countries in the world. So how in the first place did a dialect spoken by just a handful of shepherds up in northern Spain eventually become the world's second most spoken language? Jean-Benoit Nedo and Julie Barlow are the husband and wife team who've examined the history and role of first the French language in their book, The Story of French, and now they're examining the same story for Spanish. Their book is called The Story of Spanish, and they join us now to share their intriguing biography of Spanish. Hola, amigos. Hola. Hola. All right. So, yeah. Last time we spoke, you were we were all in the French mode, and, and now we've got this book, which is kind of like a biography of Spanish. What is the importance of the Spanish language on our planet today? It's a large language. It's spoken by um, about 420 million people in 20 countries. Hmm. So it has a large native base, contrary to French, for example, which has a small native base. Right. Um, it's a language also that has a peculiarity. It's actually less taught outside of its of its natural sphere, except for three countries. There's three countries where it's very largely taught as a second language, the United States, Brazil, and France. Hmm. Uh, these three countries make up about, mm, I would say, 70% of the learners outside of the Hispanic so, sphere. So that's interesting. There's, there's two dimensions of the impact of a language then. How many people speak it natively and how many people are learning it as a second language and it's not always correlated, eh? No, not at all. But one of the interesting things and one of the, I mean, one of the motivations for writing the book was this realization we had that it was, you know, growing as a second language, obviously, in the United States, but that the United States itself was becoming a kind of Hispanic country. And the United States, as we tell the story in the book, that the United States has its own Spanish language academy. Um, One of the interesting Mm. things about Spanish, unlike, say, French, is that it's very decentralized the control of the language and the standards of the language are managed among the 20 or 22 Spanish-speaking countries. And the United States is one of them, and it's an important growing center. 
So we uh, we thought that was really interesting, and we we did quite a bit of the research for the book we we did um, while we were living in Phoenix, Arizona. Okay, and um, we were looking at you know what was happening in the dynamics in the United States. The, the case of the United States is is very interesting because. We're talking about about 50 million Hispanic, Spanish-speaking people in the United States. It's almost as if the United States mm. grew mm-hmm. a country of the size of Spain. That's internally. the size of Spain, yeah. That's quite underestimated linguistic power then, 50 million yes. people in a very important country from economics and politics and so on. One aspect I find even more fascinating is that in the discourse today, we talk about the Hispanics entering the country and all, but historically, it's the United States that entered the Hispanic sphere. Like out of the Southwest, starting from Texas to mm-hmm. to California, was Spain. Oh, so in other words, we took that, we bought it, or we conquered it, or we annexed it, and you we moved it. in. Yeah. So it was Spanish-speaking yeah. first, and we yes. moved in. Is that why I looked at a chart in your book, and it shows clearly the South and the Southwest in the West Coast, along with Florida, is where the most uh, Spanish speakers are in the United States. I mm-hmm. I was thinking that would be more immigration, but actually it does mirror who was there when we annexed that territory. Yes, Exactly. The, the, when we were living in Phoenix, we were kind of stunned. I mean, the, the, the people that you would think are the immigrants actually understood the land and they understood, you know, people were harvesting cactus in this neighborhood that we were living in and to make food out of it, you know. <laughs> they, they understood the climate. It's their climate. They were doing that a long time before the uh, Louisiana Purchase or whatever. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And they're still doing it. And the, and the rest of the, you know, the white people are standing around wondering what's going on. And, the, and the, the, you know, the Latinos are wandering the streets with garbage bags, you know. Let me get this. This is interesting because a lot of Americans have, have an anxiety about our country, you know, becoming less pure English and so on. But when you really look at the history, there's always been a substantial minority of people, or at one time a majority of people, speaking Spanish in the South and the Southwest. Yes, yes. And yeah. in, in the center in Mississippi area was French. So you have that history. And mm-hmm. uh, remember when I was a student, uh, we used to go to Tex-Mex restaurants in Montreal and saying, ah, this is not real Mexican food, you know. To realize many years later that Tex-Mex is another brand of Mexican so food. that is something. It makes it, it's not just a, a tacky commercial thing. It's just a no, different no, no, region no. Yeah. of a, of a long-time ethnic reality. It's its own brand. And, and uh, the entire cowboy culture in the United States was actually created in Spain, in Spanish, by mm. Mexicans. All the vocabulary, stampede, all that is completely derived from Spanish. Bronco. Ah, That's right. Wrangler. It all, it all comes from Wrangler. It's, it's, it's endless. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jean-Benoit Nadeau and Julie Barlow about their book, The Story of Spanish. Before we get deeper into our discussion, uh, Jean-Benoit and Julie, tell us about writing this book and, and what's your goal in, in writing the book. Okay. Well, we had the idea, I mean, we had written the story of French, which is this sort of look at the history and how the uh, French was born and spread across the planet and what were the factors that turned it into an international language. And so we decided to do the same thing for Spanish. And it's a similar story, but in many ways, more ups and downs. I mean, Spanish, as you mentioned in the intro, starts out as this language of shepherds, basically, in northern Spain, and then encounters these historical moments where, and all languages are like that, where it's sort of make or break, you know, Spain could have become Arabic-speaking, it could have been dominated by different waves of, of immigration over history, and it had its kings that made fundamental decisions that shaped the language. And so 
it's, it's like a book you would read for a cultural background, but very centered on just how the language made it. I mean, it's a success story. Like the name, The Story of Spanish. That pretty much says it all. And let's just trace very quickly the growth of Spanish because all of Iberia did not speak Spanish. It started up in the north with shepherds. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. and just like blitz us through this up until today, how did it come to be the language of 400 million people? One of the most fascinating aspects is that, well, there was the Reconquista in Spain, naturally, but it's complicated by the fact that most of the Arabs in Spain were actually Spanish. (laughs) They were just Muslim. And in fact, some of the older texts of Iberic or Hispanic Romance, which is the language, that the Latin language that predated Spanish, are actually not written in, in Roman alphabet, but in Arabic. But it's not Arabic. It's you read it and it's Spanish. It's written Spanish in Arabic, and Arabic script. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's how it started. But with the Reconquista, naturally, uh, what happened is that of the of the many kingdoms in the north of Spain, Castile took the the upper hand. At around 1492, about three things happened at the same time that are critical in the history of the language. But one of them is that the king uh, and the queen Fernando and uh, Isabella decided that their kingdom would not be named Castile anymore, but Spain. Mm-hmm. And that was to, you know, like the English recalled themselves British because they wanted to be unifying all the kingdom. And uh, this king and queen did that. And that, it was at the same time that they sent that uh, explorer, Columbus, across the ocean in, in search of the road to India. He uh, naturally um, inadvertently discovered a new continent that right. nobody could imagine. And what's peculiar then about the history of Spanish is that Spain was not very populated. It had about 5 million people, which was less, just about as much as the, the British Isle. About a quarter, no, half a million of them over the next two centuries went to the colonies. Okay. And then another historical accident that had nothing to do with the greatness of Spain is that they actually not only discovered a continent, but they discovered a continent with two civilizations, most um, focusing here on... on the Aztecs and the Inca, each of which had more population than Western Europe. <laughs> and they, they became, for, for all sorts of reasons, they, they got the upper hand, and then they essentially established themselves as rulers of a gigantic kingdom, most of which was not Spanish-speaking. This is so interesting to put this together. And Castilian is still the, the name of the basic Spanish language, isn't it? In some countries, some countries still call Spanish Castilian, and okay. some countries call Spanish Spanish. Did it originate as Castilian and then it became Spanish, just like Castile became Spain? Yes, it's always a rebranding. And then to review again, 1492, we've got that new grander feeling for uh, Castile, which is now Spain. We've got Columbus, quote, discovering America and opening this mm-hmm. area up for conquistadors. And we've also mm-hmm. got the end of the Moorish occupation of Mm -hmm. Iberia as they're pushed out back into Africa. And then Mm -hmm. we've got this amazing story of a handful of conquistadors who happen to speak Spanish being able to essentially take over uh, what Mm -hmm. is today Latin America. And that had a lasting impact on the the growth of the language. Very subtle, though, because in fact, it took a good three centuries before Spanish took a full hold of Mexico and Peru. In fact, for a long time... Uh, the language that was spoken by the Aztec and the uh, in Peru by the Quechua were the languages that actually progressed in hmm. those areas. After 1492, after Cortez yeah. and so on. John Benoit Nado and Julie Barlow are exploring the story of Spanish with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So now, when I'm thinking of languages, 
I always hear, you know, Goethe made German into a serious language, or Shakespeare was the birth of the, you know, high English, or Dante was the father of the modern Italian language. And when it comes to Spanish, we think of Cervantes, uh, who wrote Don Quixote, establishing classic Spanish. What does that mean, and how important are these sort of thresholds in the maturity of the language? It's important, but I think it's important to understand that prior to that, some very fundamental things happen in the language. You know, even prior to the conquistador, you have um, a king in the 14th century who who actually standardizes Spanish. It's an important um, movement, an important thing to happen to a language before it become used. King James Bible 15th, would be standardizing it in English. In yes, but this ways. is a king who dis, who set out to make Spanish into something worthwhile to use. And Alfonso. Fran, Fran, Alfonso and French had the same thing, in fact, a little later. So it's interesting that Spanish became earlier, and a dictionary, a grammar, mm-hmm. is written just prior to 1492. As, yeah, it happened in fact, the same it's published, year. it's published the same year, and so the, the author of the dictionary took the dictionary to Queen Isabella and said, hmm. you know, I have a grammar, and yeah. she's like, so? Um, <laughs> and no one really understands how important this is, but this is sort of the basis on which the language is usable and standard. We have insider advice for enjoying your first trip to Spain and for viewing the vast art collection at the Prado in Madrid a little later in the hour. There's more with Julie and Jean Benoit on the story of Spanish and even how it influences American English today. That's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hola amigos, soy Federico desde Madrid y cuando estoy en España soy feliz como un niño. Hi, my friends, I'm Federico from Madrid, and when I'm in Spain, I'm happy as a baby. Hola amigos, soy Federico desde Madrid, y cuando estoy en España, soy feliz como un niño. Gracias. Our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves are Jean-Benoit Nedo and Julie Barlow. They brought us the story of French, and now they explore the history of the Spanish language in their book, The Story of Spanish. Their website is nadobarlow.com. That's N-A-D-E-A-U-B-A-R-L-O-W.com. We provide a link to it in this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. You know, when I'm in Spain, Jean Benoit and Julie, I'm impressed by the complexity of the linguistic terrain there. You can go to a sandwich shop in Madrid and see a menu with four languages, and they're all Spanish languages. Can you give us a little review of the dialects within Spain? Because it's certainly not all the Queen's Castilian. The main uh, other language in Spain is naturally Catalan, uh, which is based in Catalonia, Barcelona. (laughs) That's about a quarter of the population. It's a large language base. Most Catalans actually speak Spanish as a second language. The second uh, group is Galician or Galician that is in the northwest of the country, north of Portugal. Some people say that Galician is almost like Portuguese, but Mm. I'm not going to go into this. And then in between, at the junction of the Pyrenees and the uh, Atlantic Ocean, is the Basque country, another language, very ancient, uh, in fact, Basque is a language that is spoken by about uh, 600,000 people, but more importantly, is the only non-Indo-European language in in Western Europe, aside from Finnish, Mm. Mm. uh, and I think Hungarian. 
So nobody can trace the origin of, of Basque. It's a very, very old language, completely different uh, system. It's fascinating to see the, the rough-and-tumble world over the centuries of little linguistic groups and, and how they thrive or how they struggle or, or how they fade away. And certainly Spanish has been a success story that way. Let's jump across the Atlantic and just take a quick look at Spanish in Latin America. Does that refer to the part of our hemisphere that speaks a Latin-based language instead of a Germanic language, either Portuguese or Spanish, in other words? <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question because the term Latin America was actually created by the French at the end of the 19th century, they wanted to, through their diplomacy, to emphasize their link with, with Latin America. So they came up with the, that concept of Latin America, ah. in which they were included. And that would make Quebec um, a little bit of Latin America then, too. Yes, 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 yes <laughs> but it was never understood that way at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the understanding of, of Latin America is, is something south of, of the Rio Grande, um, and either Spanish or Portuguese speaking. Yes. For for a lot of travelers, the big surprise is they learn, quote, Spanish in, in high school. They go to Spain, and it's different because they happen to learn uh, uh, Spanish that's spoken in Mexico. Mm -hmm, What's the difference yeah. between... They're both called Spanish, right? What's the difference between uh, the Spanish spoken in Spain and the one you'll encounter in, in Argentina? The largest difference is that in Spain... Uh, they have that uh, th sound akin to the th in uh, English uh, in northern Spain, not in south Spain, southern Spain, but in northern Spain. Like they will say the C gracias. Right. Uh, the Z also is pronounced that way. That's one big difference. Argentinians say vos instead of usted for tu, for you. That's one of the main... So that's pretty but small differences. We, it is small differences. I mean, the, obviously, as in French and in English, too, the standard language is the same language. It's not a different language. The written language mm -hmm. is, is pretty much the same. Oh, so like in a lot of cases, you've got the, the written language, which would be consistent, but it's just yeah, uh, yeah. conversational sure. dialects. Exactly. And then you'll see the same thing between French and Quebec French. It's not two different languages. It's just two different dialects or variants. But, you know, you'll see the difference inside a country from region to region between what's spoken in casual conversation and the formal language, which is standard and, you know, the same as it is everywhere else. This is so fun to explore, and it would be important for people to have a little sense of this before their travels. The people who brought us the bonjour effect and the story of French are exploring the history of the Spanish language with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Jean-Benoit Nadeau and Julie Barlow have written The Story of Spanish as a sort of biography of the Spanish language, from its origins with shepherds in Castile to its prominence in the New World. Their website is nadeaubarlow.com, which you can read in either English, French, or Spanish. There's a lot of ways that a foreign language creeps into our own language that we don't even recognize. What's an example how Spanish has become part of the English way of an American looking at the world? Oh, the most famous way is by far the dollar sign. The term dollar comes from the, the, a German term for the silver piece that they used in Spain, because Spain was part of the Habsburg Empire. But the Spanish dollar, also known as the piece of eight, was the currency of reference from the 16th century until the middle of the 19th century. In fact, when the New York Stock Exchange was founded, I think in 1812 or 1820, the currency of reference was the Spanish dollar which is why the shares on the New York Stock Exchange were traded in, in eights until like 1992. Hmm. It's because it was the piece of eight. And the dollar sign, properly speaking, is actually a section of the Spanish flag. You know these two columns of Gibraltar 
with the twirl of the curtain. Look at it carefully. It's an S with two bars. And that's what they used as a short... So for, that S uh, with the two bars the, originates in Spanish. It was associated with the Spanish dollar, the piece of eight, oh, the, okay. the peso. Wow. And that's why in Latin America, they still use the dollar sign for peso because right. actually it's the dollar that used the peso sign. They really. just put it on the other side of the number than we do, I think. <laughs> yeah. Spanish really is the unofficial second language of the United States. Review the importance of Spanish and the prevalence of Spanish right now in our country. Well, 50 million people, I would say. Uh, that's no small number. Uh, more importantly, uh, some important media, mostly TV and radio, large uh, following uh, in, in terms of uh, music and cinema. The United States is now one of the main centers of production for telenovelas. Uh, so a lot of the telenovelas that are, that are aired all over Mexico are produced in the United States? I would not say a lot, uh, no, but, uh, it's, but it's a center. Growing, uh-huh. but I think what struck us the most about Spanish is that, you know, despite a discourse and from what we hear in Canada, particularly right now, um, a sort of anti-immigrant discourse, people take for granted that they need to learn Spanish as a language of social promotion in the United States. People oh, yeah. need to learn Spanish, especially where we were living in the South. Everybody needs to speak Spanish or feels they should speak Spanish. It's mm-hmm. very like day-to-day considered almost a necessity in the United States. And that's an amazing thing to see Mm -hmm. when you're outside of the country and you're hearing the the discourse about immigration. It's like, in reality, everybody knows that Spanish is really useful and they're very motivated to learn it. Well, 50 million people. You know, it's so easy to naively think a border is just black and white. Uh, It's just uh, north of the border they speak this, south of the border they speak that, especially with the importance of media these days. Uh, You know, if you could look at kind of a heat map or something and where the media goes and what language people consume that media in, it fades as you go north or south of the border. I I know that uh, I was down in Tijuana and so many people were really tuned in to public television from San Diego in Tijuana and you've got this whole, um, the rise of Spanish-speaking media in the United States, right? Yeah, we were uh, we were naturally in Arizona, and we traveled to uh, California. We have friends there, and we we went. And uh, one of the great sociological differences between uh, Hispanics, it struck us, between Hispanics in Arizona and the ones in in California, is that in California they've been there for longer, and they're they're more open about living their their. They're more self confident. Uh, they're more self confident about their culture. Hmm. In uh, California, whereas, yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Whereas in Arizona, it was a lot more recent. And they were not as confident publicly. That so was, they're like newcomers rather than indigenous people. Exactly. Yes, Although exactly. even though when you go to Tucson, when you go further to the border where you're going to get families that have been living sort of on the border or across the border for generations, there's a difference in that too between mm-hmm. that and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Phoenix is really a place where they arrive. In Tucson, you feel like you're in more of the cultural confidence of Mexico. You know, as we melt from one culture to another culture, the languages sort of intermingle, and we have this uh, Spanglish situation. Uh, do, mm-hmm. Does Spanglish uh, threaten Spanish in any way, or, or what's the views on that? I would not say that uh, it does. What threatens a language is never uh, borrowings from that language. It's it's the the status, you know? If people are marginalized because of their language, that is the real threat uh, to right. a language because then they abandon it. So when a, when a language is fading away, because every year a few languages die, a handful of languages yes, die, some, you, you get but, to a terminal point, I understand, where if you don't have a university, if you don't have media, if you don't have a press, uh, you know, it, it becomes a downward spiral. 
But Spanish has all those things. It's, of course. You know, yeah. It has every reason to be very confident. I don't yeah. think... And Spanish speakers have a sort of different attitude towards that, say, than French speakers do. Because um, they're, huh, they're, French you know, are more defensive about that. They're more defensive about it for different reasons. Mm-hmm. But the Spanish are a little less... They have a little maybe more of the philosophy you'd associate with English. They're a little more open-minded to... So why would the French be different boring. than the Spanish in that regard? Oh, it's complicated, but I think it has to do with the the position of French on the continent. That is the problem of Quebecers and the psychology of the French in France, which have to deal with uh, their own history, the end of their colonial empire. So they and, used to uh, be really on the top of the pile. Yeah. And it was the lingua franca and so on. To come back to Spanglish, I would say that it's actually a normal phenomenon. If you have a population that is largely bilingual, it's absolutely normal that in speech there's a code-switching mm-hmm. process, which is what Spanglish is. Yeah. People switch code. Do they do that just for fun because it's, 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 yeah. it's cool to say hola? It's uh, more than hola, but it's, it's yeah. um, because they're bilingual, they're capable literally in speech of choosing yeah. you can choose which your part favorites. of this. Yeah, exactly, and what message they want to convey. It's a little bit like the Japanese who have four writing systems and they, they use one of them in part of a sentence and then another uh, language code in the other part of the sentence, and the message is in the choice of the code. Mm-hmm. It's also, Spanish is an accessible language. I mean, I mentioned earlier the king in the 14th century who standardized the language, and one of the things he did was to make it phonetic, which the French never did. Oh. So Spanish is a pretty easy, it has a reputation as a, I didn't find it that easy, but it, it has a reputation as an easy language to learn. Partly because it's easy to pick up the rules because the the spellings are very uniform. Oh, and, and the grammar and the, the grammar, grammar is audible. Yeah, the grammar is audible. But so but it's a gender. So I think it makes it. It's got this gender thing like French and, and German that English doesn't have. Um, yeah, but yeah. It's, why, it's, is that it's, something uh, that people just take in stride? It just seems to me it doubles the complexity of learning to speak. No, a language if you grew correctly. up in if you grew up into it, that you actually do not think about it. The main problem is how it's taught as a second language. I'll give you an example. I, I learned German at one point, and I was learning Arabic. And when they begin teaching you a second language, they will say, for example, uh, let's use French and English as a comparison. They will mm-hmm. say chair is chaise, for example, and table is table. But that's a mistake. You actually put your English grammar into the, onto the French because, in effect, chair is la chaise huh. and table is la table, you know? If you think in French, it's not table, it's la table. <laughs> yeah, because it's always going to be, they're always going to be the two words together then, right? Yes, the concept cannot be dissociated. Ah, it's it's uh, that's when you grow yeah. up into it. So the problem is in the teaching. The problem is that it's taught using the another system of thinking. And naturally, it complicates the entry into it. I learned Spanish after I learned French. And the fact that I had been through one language with genders already wasn't a block for me at all. Like, I learned Spanish quickly because I simply just, like, didn't question the fact that I had to learn the genders. And they just come with the word. If a, if a noun is a certain gender in one language, would it be the same gender in another language? No. Nope. nope. <laughs> Completely nope. random? Nope. <laughs> I wish. Even within Latin? Even within Latin-speaking um, languages, French and Spanish? I can imagine German no, would be different. This, they're not all the same. They're not no, it's all not the com- same. It's, yeah, there it's are similar. similarities, but uh, it's I would say 90%. But there's a 10% you have to be careful. But there's, <laughs> but there's no... There's no like. Uh, there's no innuendo. Know, there, there's no. A mountain is a man, and a, no. and a river is a woman. You know, there's none of no, that. No, it's, no, it's no. actually yeah. the contrary. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no a, river, a, a mountain. A mountain is feminine in French. No, so there's fact, no uh, logic to it. It's completely random, and you just got to think of them as wedded together. 
So mm-hmm. when you say table, it is the table, and there's no question about the sex because that's part of the word. Yeah, but it's like you learn a skill. It's like as if you learned yeah. something when you were really young. You just learn yeah. a skill for thinking of gender, and you just it just registers. It just if you've registers. done it once already. It's just it's not. We we find it funny because the names names in English like Trinity and Honor. Uh, Trinity is a man's name and honor is a is a woman's name and in French it's odd because honor is masculine and Trinity is feminine so we find it very comical in French that every time I hear the name honor as a first name I immediately think of a man oh my goodness that's Uh, the kind of humor I will never be able to appreciate because I'm I'm, I'm (laughs) so far behind linguistically this is so fun to talk about all these insights to language and and the cultural and the the heritage behind them we've been talking with Jean-Benoit Nadeau and Julie Barlow, their book is The Story of Spanish. And there's one question that I've just got to tap into both of you on because I can never get a straight story. What is the origin of the word gringo, the way Mexicans historically called people from the United States? Oh, it's um, apparently a deformation of, of Greek, griego. It's something related to the, the, the idea. All cultures have their way of, of naming what was regarded as barbarous, you know, like the Greeks invented the term barbar because every foreigner spoke and it sounded like bar, bar, bar. So they invented the term barbar. Uh-huh. So just barbarous like they weren't and, even human. They were just sort of animals, barbar, yeah. bar, barbarians. So in, in, in English, you say, oh, it's Greek to me, right? It's, yeah. it's foreign to me. Oh, cool. But oh, okay. they did have that same expression, something similar in Spanish. And then the term evolved into gringo. There's other theories that it comes from... Uh, a song that the during the the war of uh, 1846 when they, they had a song that said green go because they were dressed in the soldiers were dressed american soldiers were dressed in green but i i am not convinced of that one the, the etymology i read was about greek okay jean benoit and julie you've you've put so much energy into sorting through these linguistic backstories of french and spanish and so on as english and french speakers when you've studied this whole biography of the Spanish language, let's just finish our conversation with an example from each of you about the joy of Spanish. What did you discover? What have you learned that, that really delights you about Spanish? Hmm. Hmm. Good question. Yeah, good, I, whoa. <laughs> it's not I, one thing in I, my case. I think for me, it was, I mean, we decided to, you know, give this, really explore the situation in the United States, which I, you know, honestly didn't understand very well. And so I learned Spanish to write the book, and I learned it in Mexico. And um, the great joy of it was, you know, moving to Phoenix and slipping into the the community of immigrants, which we were a part of. You know, our kids were at a school with a lot of Spanish-speaking, really, like, freshly arrived immigrants. And it was just seeing the world through their eyes and being able to communicate directly with them Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting that sense of it. And then... It's always fun with this kind of book to be looking at the big picture of a language and understanding, you know, the the intellectual background of it, and then to be living with it intimately in day-to-day relations. And it was, uh, for me, that was one of the the most exciting things about it. For me, it was, uh, I'm passionate about Mexico. It's a country I love. And in fact, Julie and I want to go and live in Mexico for a while. We will not consider (laughs) our life a success if we don't go spend uh, three or six months in Mexico. But... To me, the big surprise was actually going to Spain, which I didn't know before I researched this book, and discovering a radically new country, completely different from Mexico, to which I had full access because of the language. Mm. I mean, to me, that was the great pleasure. I could just enter it 
interview the director of the uh, academy in Spain, in Madrid, and you interview this and that person just using the same language skills I had for Mexico. I mean, <laughs> that's what the global language is about. That is such a beautiful and a powerful a blessing when you're traveling to be able to connect directly by speaking the language of the people you want to get to know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Jean-Benoit Nadeau and Julie Barlow. Their book is The Story of Spanish. Thank you very much. Gracias. De nada. Thank you. De nada. You can listen to Julie and Jean-Benoit's earlier appearances about the nuances of the French language. You'll find links with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. Insider advice for enjoying your first trip to Spain is ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Your first trip to Spain can be a breeze if you know how to temper your expectations for what's likely to be a different way of life compared to back home. Let's get some well-tested advice from tour guides who specialize in introducing American visitors to Spain. Joining us are Francisco Gloria, who lives in Pamplona in the Northeast, and American-born James Scanlon, who lives in his wife's home region of San Sebastian in the Basque Country. Thank you. Thank you. When we think of Americans going to Spain, all this opportunity, all of this overwhelming, it's the first time, what do I do right? From your experience, James, you've been living there now for more than a decade. You've got a, a lot of experience traveling. What are the pitfalls? What advice would you give an American to properly experience Spain? One of the things I would encourage people to be prepared for is the difference in kind of how the daily routine goes in terms of hours. People tend to have breakfast a little bit later, will have lunch much later, and dinner as well. And so, if you fight that, you're asking for trouble. Yeah, it can be tough sometimes. It kind of throws you off, especially in American culture where we're very used to having dinner as early as 5 or 6 o'clock. In Spain, dinner's not going to be served at a sit-down restaurant generally until 8 or 8.30 p.m. So when I'm researching my guidebooks, I'm checking out all the restaurants. And if I'm visiting restaurants at 7 o'clock, I'm just seeing the staff having their dinner. Exactly. And if a place is serving, it's a, not a good restaurant if it's serving that time. I mean, I, don't, I think that's a, a restaurant that's a hard that's a rock cafe. Trap. Yeah. <laughs> a tourist yeah. trap. So that's important is to go with the tempo. And Francisco, what is it, some advice you would have for the American visiting Spain for his first time? Uh, I think the, one of the things about Spain is that we're very loud and we're very direct people. One of the things when we come, Europeans, to the United States, it takes forever to do anything. You go to a cafe and it's like, hi, how are you doing? My, uh, my name is Shelly. Uh, how can I help you? When you go to Spain, it's like, a coffee. <laughs> That's it. So people think it's rude. It's not. It's just the way we do it. So we're very, very direct. So and no small talk. Just no what small do you talk. want? So it's like, a coffee. How much? Oh, one euro. Thanks. Bye. So don't judge by how many extra words and smiles you get. Smiles. No, no, not either. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's funny. I, I would definitely agree with what Francisco said there. And if you were to walk into a place and open the conversation, if you were to buy something, a, a candy bar, with the normal niceties that we might yeah. say, hi, how are you? Uh, may I please have this? People would look at you funny. like So save that for France. Exactly. Now, when you go to Spain, it is hot in the summer. How do local people deal with the heat, uh, Francisco? The first thing, do not come out at midday. You have the most important thing in Spain, which is called siesta. A siesta, it's a necessity in the south of Spain. When you said that, I remembered I learned last time I was in Spain. I think there's a joking word for uh, tourists uh, or people that are out working and sightseeing in the early afternoon. 
wall huggers. They're yeah. close to the wall to be in the shade. To be in the shade. And then uh, shrimp because they're just sunburned. Yeah, they're all sunburned. <laughs> it's so easy to see, especially, sorry, the Brits. They sunburn very, very fast. <laughs> English people do sunburn quickly, and they're up against the wall trying to stay out of the sun, while a Spaniard would be under a tree having a drink or at home taking a nap. Taking a little or, nap. Yeah, and then out late. Yes, as James was saying, you, you change the timings. So, James, how do you handle the, the heat? What was your trick? Stay indoors. I think that's a good one. From noon till 5. Yes. Or even a little bit later, as, as I mentioned, that lunchtime is usually around 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So you have lunch. So you can have a long, relaxing lunch. lunch. And exactly. that would be generally air-conditioned or at least in the shade. Exactly. But you're not out there, you know, beating the pavement to see this in that church in this gallery. Exactly. That's pretty important. Also, in Spain, there's this wonderful tradition of the paseo. Mm-hmm. And, and that's after the sun's gone down, basically, isn't it? It's when people reemerge from the cave or their nap and the temperatures come down a bit. You know, being a very social culture, people go out, have a nice, long, relaxing walk, wave to their friends, maybe stop and have a coffee or a beer in a cafe. What's the paseo scene from city to city? How would we as tourists know where it is or, or what to do? I would say typically it's going to be in the area of around parks, uh, city squares with a lot of restaurants or tables outside. Pedestrian areas? Exactly. A lot of times? Yeah. So you could ask at the hotel, where's the paseo? Definitely. What's prime time for a paseo? Well, it depends on the time of year, uh-huh. but uh, between 7 and 8 o'clock. 7 and 8 o'clock. So it's before dinner? Yes, before and that's, dinner. In fact, that's when you're ready for dinner, go for a walk for an hour and a half and be out there with the people. And then you're nice and hungry. <laughs> Francisco, what's your advice on the paseo? It's a must thing. It is a must thing. I mean, if you you want to leave the Spanish thing, you have to go for a paseo. It's a place to meet people, to see the real people. And to enjoy the architecture and the vibe of the city. Uh, Every city has a great Plaza Mayor. Yes. And the great, like I can remember in uh, Salamanca, the greatest Plaza Mayor, I think. And everybody's out. It's not a tourist thing. It's not a young adult thing. It's everybody, all the generations. I think it's one of the things that shocks Americans. You have... The grandparents, the kids, the babies, strollers, the whole city is out. I love that. Francisco Gloria is a lifelong resident of Pamplona. And Minnesota-born James Scanlon now makes San Sebastian his home, where he's raising a family with his Basque-born wife. There are guides for a first-timer's look at Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Now, when we're planning a trip to Spain, we have to consider the crowds because Spain really is a popular destination. James, is there a kind of a peak season and a less crowded season? How do, how do you deal with tourist crowds, and, and what are the pros and cons? Um, peak season is going to be similar to a lot of other parts of Europe, so kind of May through September, the busiest probably being September. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a dip in uh, uh, July and August when it's so hot. It's pretty hot, so there's definitely a dip there. So if you don't mind the heat, it's a good time to go. The crowds okay. are a little bit smaller. Right. Um, in terms of going to museums and things, I would say get there early. Mm-hmm. Um it tends to be much less crowded, uh, say 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock in the morning. As so when it opens, find out midday. when it opens. Exactly. Francisco, a lot of tourists want to go to the same place. Everybody's in Madrid. They all want to go to the palace. Everybody's in Barcelona. They all want to go to Gaudi's Sagrada Familia Church. Everybody's in Granada. They want to go to the Alhambra. Mm-hmm. What's your advice for tickets? Go online. Like go online. Everywhere else in the world, go online and get your tickets before you leave. So the even States. if technically you can go to the door and get a ticket, you're asking for frustration. Yes. You're risking a bad day. I was just in Barcelona and the ticket booth closed. They just said, they went home. We've sold all our tickets today. Come back tomorrow. Especially, and, like you said, like Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, 
go online. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking tips for first-time visitors to Spain. We're joined by two tour guides from Spain, James Scanlon and Francisco Gloria. When we're thinking about going to Spain, a lot of times you've got these clichés that people just have to see. James, what are the top two or three clichés that, granted, they're very touristy, but also you just got to do them? What are your tips on experiencing that dimension of Spain? I think one good example is the bullfighting culture. Mm -hmm. It is certainly not all of Spain that is proud of bullfighting or very into it. So if you're in the north and the Basque country of Catalonia, you're likely not to find much, if any at all. I heard it was outlawed in Catalonia. They don't do bullfighting anymore in Catalonia. That's correct. Where do they do it? Uh, Mostly in Madrid and then in the south. You still have bullfights in Ronda. Francisco, what's your advice for bullfighting? You come from the city where they run <laughs> with we the ball. The wheel. So I'm, I'm like, <laughs> political correctness. Sorry. Okay. Political correctness. I'm trying to respond to this. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. You, got, you got bullfighting in your blood. Come on, be I honest. Have, I love bullfighting. I'm from the <laughs> north. I cannot deny it. I, I know a lot of people do not understand. It's very difficult to understand bullfighting. But I always tell people like when they come to Spain, go to see one bullfight. Try to understand it. Mm-hmm. Because there's much more than just killing an animal. Mm-hmm. And so it's the pride of the life of the animal. So it's a very beautiful thing. Yes, there's that. I understand that people are not going to like it, but you might understand it. I mean, you can say it's barbaric, and objectively it is. But and from and a, I perfectly understand it. But from a culture point of view, it's, it's always been there, and, and people read about it in the culture pages, not in the sports pages. Yes. I mean, for us, it's... For the people who, that we like bullfighting, it's more almost like a religion. And you can feel it even in the bars. There's The bullfight is on the TV. Yeah, it's on the TV, and you have bullfighting uh, bars, like you have soccer bars. So it's, it's in our blood, it's in our DNA. So if you're interested in a bullfight, uh, Madrid has the big arena, arena. Yes. In Pamplona, where you live, there's a bullfight every day during the running of the bull season. In, in Pamplona, uh, we only have to in one week a year, but in, mm-hmm. in Madrid, uh, you have a season. A whole season. Yeah, you Sundays from Easter mm-hmm. until yeah. the fall. Mm-hmm. And then in Andalusia also. Mm-hmm. The quintessential place is Andalusia. Another cultural cliche would be flamenco. And a lot of times when people think about Spain, they're kind of thinking about Andalusia, aren't they? I was in uh, Barcelona, and there was a big procession and a big parade and the Virgin Mary, and the Catalonian people kind of rolled their eyes and they go, these are people from Andalusia. Well, the thing is that Andalusia is such a powerful culture. We have yeah. to understand that there are 700 years of Muslim, I don't like saying domination, but Muslim heritage. Mm-hmm. And that happiness, that special thing is very powerful. And it's where you see it in Andalusia. Andalusia is very, very special. Because of the Muslim influence or because of the strength of the indigenous culture to survive that? But the thing is that a lot of the flamenco comes yeah. from the Muslim. That's true. Form. When you listen to the flamenco singing, you can hear the I echoes. Almost, I almost hear the echoes of the call to prayer. It's a it is. wailing so, from, from Arabia. The thing is that Andalusia, it's by the Mediterranean. So, so many cultures coming in and out. So it's a mixture, a melting pot of all of these cultures. So the flamenco, it's the summary of all of them. This is so important when we travel to have a little context to understand these kind of... They can be cultural cliches, but they are the essence of the culture in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, Spain, it's Andalusia and it's flamenco. And a lot of people so find, ah, Spain is not only that. No, but it's a huge part of it's what we are. It's a huge part of it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking tips for a first-time visitor to Spain. We've been joined by two Spanish tour guides, James Scanlon and Francisco Gloria. So, James, just to wrap things up, Share with us one food experience that you think everybody should be mindful of as they think about traveling in Spain. 
I would say a great food experience to take advantage of, and it almost falls in the cliche category as well, is the jamón. Trying the, the wonderful jamón from Spain. The, the beautiful ham. It's, it's the ham, yes, mm. the cured ham. It's fantastic. When I come across the border, I'm not in Spain until I've crunched through the beautiful crusty bread and into that jamón. And it's worth paying extra. Absolutely. For the good jamón. Yes. What's the good jamón and what's the cheap? Uh, the good jamón comes from the Iberian pig, uh-huh. uh, and it's fed acorns. What's it called? So it gives it a, the pata negra. You'd see the, what is it, Iberico? Iberico, yes. Iberico. Jamón Iberico. And then the run-of-the-mill ham would be uh, Serrano. Jamón Serrano. Serrano, exactly, Serrano. So you don't need to know the name, just get the expensive stuff. Exactly, get, it's worth paying for. It's worth eating less and better. Yes. Life's too short to eat mediocre ham in Spain. Francisco, what about a musical experience when you're in Spain? To me, there are like two big Spanish music themes. One is the flamenco that we have already talked about. So you have to go to see a flamenco show. Yeah. Okay. Some of them are cheesy, very touristic, but it's flamenco. So if you go to one of these places and you feel something, then I don't care if it's touristic. Flamenco is about passion, it's about feeling. So it's a great thing. Sit in the front row and look into yes. the eyes of the performers. And it's so much power. What is the word? Duen- duende? duende. Duende. What is duende? Duende is like a... It's a spark. That, it's a spark you feel deep inside yes. of you. And it goes back centuries and you're part of the scene. And you will feel it. I mean, uh, flamenco, it's about letting yourself feel. And you're right. You can stay up at midnight and go to some bar with all the Spaniards, but you can also, at 7 o'clock, there's a show for $15, and you got 50 tourists sitting around, and you got some local musicians just singing and playing their heart out, and I find it riveting. It is fantastic. I love flamenco. Sevilla is the easiest place to do that. Yes, in Sevilla, you're going to find in every corner. All right. So, flamenco, and then what was the other musical thought? Uh, The other thing is, uh, a little bit more culturally, is the zarzuela. Zarzuela. If you want to, it starts with Z. With a Z? Yeah, okay. okay. What is that? Zarzuela, it's like the Spanish opera. Okay. Okay, it's more between opera and a Broadway show. It's kind of like our Gilbert and Sullivan kind of yes. light opera. It's a little light opera. But it's, uh, the topics that they talk about, it's very Spanish topics. Yeah. So it's a uh, very Melodramatic. Nice, very dramatic. When I've gone, you don't need to understand the language because the little light opera themes are just yeah. so predictable. So it's, it's very predictable. It's delightful. But it's very, I love the Zarzuela. Where do you find Zarzuela? I, I, there's a famous theater in Madrid yeah. for that. Uh, in Madrid, you, it's the best place to find all the zarzuelas. And you can still find that today. Mm-hmm. Zarzuela, That's flamenco, jamón. Beautiful advice from great guides. Francisco, James, gracias. Thank you. Thank you. To truly appreciate the magnificent art you'll find in Spain, I recommend you plan to spend some time with one of Europe's greatest collections at the Prado in Madrid. To help us with a game plan for viewing the art in this massive museum, we're joined right now by Gene Openshaw. Gene is my original European travel buddy, and he co-authors our art books, including Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler, as well as the Art of Europe TV series. Gene, the collection at the Prado can be so overwhelming. Can you help us get started with, let's say, four of its most important artists? Well, you've got a billion superstars. That's the problem. So what you got to do is put your running shoes on because you're going to be racing through the Prado. The Prado gives the whole history of European art. But what you probably want to focus on is the Spanish artists. Okay. So let's, let's name them. Who comes to mind? Who's number one when you think of Spanish artists? Uh, Velázquez. I have a hard time pronouncing his name, but he's one of my favorites. Exactly. The great realist painter. Um, we got Goya. Goya. El Greco, the Greek who ended up in Spain. El Greco, the Greek. And I might even throw 
Murillo in there. Now, Murillo, he's the guy that uh, is the super Catholic painter that uh, doesn't really break out of Spain that much, but in Spain, he is really beloved. He is. And in fact, if there's any overarching thing between those people, I would say it is their religious fervor. Okay, so really quickly, let's talk Velázquez. What's his masterpiece there? Um, Las Meninas. People have seen it. If, if, if you ever saw it, it's mainly that little girl in a dress, and she's posing for a portrait. What's remarkable about that is just how realistic it was. They actually have a, a little a rope cordoning it off so you don't walk into it. You feel like, <laughs> yeah, you feel like it's just an extension of the room. So let's talk about Goya. Goya is, is the perfect Spanish artist because he caught a time in Spain that was very turbulent. Spain had been invaded by the French, and there were battles. And Goya captured probably the most famous battle, the 3rd of May, when the French soldiers came in and arrested the Spanish revolutionaries and took them out to a firing squad. And you got a guy kneeling there, pleading with them, don't kill me. And the French soldiers level their guns, completely apathetic, mm. and pow. I think Goya's, to me, he's the first painter with a social conscience that had a commentary. And he made a great impact on the modern artists that followed. Let's talk about El Greco, because he's almost a, in a class by himself, El Greco. El Greco came to Spain at a time when religion was totally dominant, and he captured that spirituality. Mm -hmm. If you think of El Greco, they're, they're these skinny, ectomorphic saints. They've they, been they out flicker. in the desert. They, they almost flicker like candles. Like there. candles, like they're, they're charged from within by a spiritual fervor. They're elongated. I mean, you could almost think he's painting these people wrong, but like, it's effective. Isn't like it? aliens without the alien eyes. They're, El Greco. They're, they're, they live in two worlds. And in some ways, I think that's what Spain was like. It was very gritty and realistic, but they always had their eyes on heaven. And finally, when you think about eyes on heaven, it's got to be Murillo. What's Murillo, Murillo, Murillo. Murillo was, was known for painting his beautiful virgins, Virgin Marys. They had these creamy complexions. People would look at them and they would swoon. It was a great way for the average worshiper to connect with this the figure of Mary who could bring them to salvation. So in some ways, the whole Catholic doctrine was inaccessible, but the artist made it accessible by this very easy-to-love, beautiful, beautiful virgin. Beautiful virgin. Velázquez, Goya, El Greco, Murillo. Superstars in the greatest collection of paintings, I think, in all of Europe, in the Prado, in Madrid. Jean, why so much great art in one building in one city in Spain? Well, I'll just name one more name. Columbus. Just think, Columbus sailed from Spain to the New World, and suddenly for the next century, all of this wealth poured into Spain, and they were now the richest country in Europe. And with that wealth, they bought up all of the great art from Italy, from France, from all over, and they brought it into their treasure chest, the Prado. So a great empire spanning many countries today with lots of wealth and a great appreciation of art. And it all ended up in the Prado. Gene, it's been fun riffing on culture with you. It's always a good reminder that little art and history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Gracias. De nada. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Casmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Website support comes from Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Court. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. 
Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the CBC Radio Canada in Montreal for their help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's get together again next week for another Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves guidebooks originated as the handbooks for our Rick Steves tours, but these are designed to give you all the details so you can do our tours without us. From Spain to Finland and from Scotland to Greece, we've got over 50 titles, each of them lovingly updated so you can be your own guide and a dang good one. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.